Have you hugged a Democrat today? If not, why not? Don't you like them? Have you hugged a Republican today? In, in this congregation, it's probable that you have. But on the off chance that you haven't, why not? Don't you like them? The Pew Institute released the results of a survey last October, and the study found that the share of very unfavorable opinions of the other party has more than doubled in the past 23 years. NPR ran an article based on the research, and the title was, Republicans and Democrats don't agree or like each other, and it's worse than ever. The study also found that only 14% of Republicans say that they have a lot of friends in the opposing party, but that's better than Democrats who say they just have 9% friends in the opposite party. The division in our country is palpable, isn't it? We can feel the factious spirit in our country, and my guess is that most of us don't like it. We don't like the atmosphere that's very commonly described as toxic. We don't like the incessant criticism and the villainization of those who disagree with each other. We know that God has made us reasonable people. God has said, come, let us reason together. The Word of God says, let your reasonableness be evident to all, and yet we are frustrated because in the midst of this intense division, we feel like reason has fled. Where's it gone? We feel it. Division. It's not good. And the only reason I talk about that and, and try to get you to enter into the, the feelings you have and the frustrations that we have over the division in our country is because those very same divisions are, are often reality in our own heart. Our own hearts are divided. Within your heart, within my heart, there are competing factions. Loving the Lord, loving the ways of the world. The two don't agree. Being devoted to the Lord, but also being devoted to the things of the world. The two don't agree. And the division is not good. And it's just as harmful to us and our hearts and our lives as it is to our country. God has better for us than that. God is a God of unity. In Christ, he holds out the possibility of a united heart. In fact, God tells us in his word that he has a purpose, which he set forth in Christ, and here's the purpose, to unite all things in Christ. That's good news, isn't it? We don't have to suffer the turmoil and the trauma or the toxicity of having a divided heart. In fact, you and I can have a united heart, an undivided heart. A pure heart is an undivided heart. And that's what I want us to talk about as we come to the word of the Lord this morning. We're returning to Matthew chapter 5 uh, and the Beatitudes. So if you have your Bibles with you, I ask you to turn to Matthew chapter 5. And when you found your place, let's stand together so we can hear read together the word of the living God. Matthew 
Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. This is the word of the living God. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you again for your word. Thank you, Lord, that the word we hear is blessed, and we know that that is your heart, to bless your people. So bless us, Lord, now, as we, your people, come together around your word. Spirit of God, give us wisdom, light the path, reveal the truth, transform our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Since it has been a while since I've been with you, and I'm very thankful to be back, I thought we should remember just a little bit about the Beatitudes since we began studying them back in June, many months ago. In the Beatitudes, Jesus pictures life in the kingdom, the aspect of his kingdom that is right now, right now, his kingdom right now, as we wait for the kingdom in its fullness when Christ returns. And the right now kingdom life that God has for you and for me is one of blessing. That's why each beatitude begins with the words, blessed are. Here Jesus describes a life that flourishes. A life of peace for you and me. A complete life. A sound life. A healthy life. A life that truly prospers. That's what Jesus wants for us. In the Beatitudes, Jesus puts forth the conditions in which that flourishing takes place for you and for me. But these conditions require something of us. They require that we radically revision our lives. Do you remember those two words? Radical and revision. You and I, we have to relook at our lives. That means The way we look at life probably has to change in light of what Jesus teaches us here. The life we have envisioned for ourselves may need to change in light of what Jesus teaches here. The hopes we had, the dreams, the ambitions, the goals, all those we may need to look at and reconsider in light of the truth of God's Word. The revisioning must be radical. In the sense that it has to be fundamental to our character. It's got to be comprehensive. It's got to incorporate all of who we are. And so with that in mind, about the Beatitudes in general, and the radical revisioning they require, we return this morning to the sixth Beatitude. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. The last time we were together in this beatitude, which was four weeks ago, we talked about two characteristics that mark a heart that's pure, a life that flourishes, and those are humility and dependence. And so we definitely need to do some radical revisioning, most of us do, 
because we admire independence. And most of us, unfortunately, tend much more toward pride than we do toward humility. We saw humility expressed in King David's prayer in Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. We saw humility expressed in the prayer of the tax collector who couldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. If you will be pure in heart, you've got to be humble before the Lord. And you've got to rid yourself of the pride that believes that you can help yourself. You humbly acknowledge that if the Lord doesn't help you, you have no hope. That's a humble person. Our humility then leads to our dependence on the Lord. We saw that expressed by King David's prayer as well. He prays, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. David's acknowledging in this prayer, Lord, my new heart, my clean heart, my pure heart must be your creation. Humility, dependence, that's what you must have if you will have a, a pure heart, if, if you will see God this morning. We need to add to humility and dependence one more characteristic of a pure heart. And in this characteristic, you and I have much more of an active part to play. In this characteristic, we will be called on to make careful considerations of our lives. We'll be called on to make difficult decisions about our lives. Now, the good news is that we are equipped by the Spirit for this role. The Spirit of God has equipped us to do what He has called us to do here. And so the third characteristic of a pure heart is that it is undivided. A pure heart is a heart of single devotion to the Lord. Let's think about it, because it makes sense. When something's pure, it's not mixed with anything else. Pure water is H2O. Two parts hydrogen, one part oxygen, nothing else. Nothing else is added to pure water, not chlorine, not fluoride, nothing. All the impurities have been removed or filtered out, and so it is, if it's pure, singularly H2O and nothing else. And so when it comes to our hearts, your heart and mine, our hearts must be singular. Our hearts must be united. Our hearts must be undivided in our devotion to the Lord. The pure heart is clean and clear of other devotions that would dominate or drive it. Your heart, if it's pure, will be clear and clean of other devotions that would dominate it and drive it. The pure heart that leads to flourishing is devoted to Christ and driven by what He requires. And if you in this moment are thinking, well, that's a drudgery to be devoted to the Lord, then you have not yet really understood who Jesus is. It can never be a drudgery 
to be devoted to a person like Jesus Christ. If you think it's a drudgery to be driven by his goals, you haven't yet caught the beautiful vision that Jesus has for his kingdom in this world and the place that he has given you in bringing about that kingdom. When we see Jesus, when we understand his vision, our affections, our devotion will be captivated and will be inspired by what is possible, what is possible. When we as God's people are singularly devoted to Christ, John Stott, in his commentary on this verse in Matthew, has this quote that the pure heart is a single, the pure heart as single-minded, those who are free from the tyranny of a divided self, things that are not of Christ are the things that tyrannize us, things that are not of Christ. Those are the things that tyrannize us, that that divide us, that seek to dominate us. And In our call to worship this morning, we read from Psalm 86. It's another psalm, another prayer of King David. David prays this time, Teach me your way, Lord, that I may rely on your faithfulness. Give me an undivided heart, that I may fear your name. I will praise you, O Lord my God, with all my heart. I will glorify your name forever. The entirety of our heart, David prays, may it belong to you, Lord. The the ESV translates it this way. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I give thanks to you, O Lord my God, with my whole heart, and I will glorify your name forever. See, David prays for a heart that's not divided. A heart that's united in relying on the faithfulness of the Lord. A heart that's united in living in light of the truth of God's word. A heart that's united in its complete awe of who the Lord is. Now why do you think David would pray a prayer like that? Lord, give me an undivided heart. Because David's a man of the world. Because David wields great power. Because David possesses great wealth. Because David is gifted with great bravery and strength and exceptional looks. And when all those attributes are available to a person, man or woman or you or me, it's difficult for us not to have a divided heart. David had the Lord. But he also had these other things in his life and they were very present and they were very real. And these other things were very effective in accomplishing what David wanted to accomplish in his life. And so those other things must have been very appealing, very alluring to David. And so it's little wonder that David prayed, Lord, give me an undivided heart. Let me not go after those things, Lord. Let me be a holy devoted to you. You think the tension is palpable between Republicans and Democrats. Try allowing to coexist in your heart love for God and love for the values of this world. Attempt living your life for God and 
living for what the world values. I guarantee this, you will be miserable. The division will make you miserable. That's why Jesus says in Matthew 6, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. The word translated healthy actually means being motivated by singleness of purpose. If your eye, what you look at, what you long for in this life, if it's motivated by singleness of purpose, you will flourish and your life will be full of light. And that singleness of purpose for you and for me is summed up in the great commandment of Jesus. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's a single purpose for your life. It's summed up in the words of Jesus we read earlier in the service. Seek first the kingdom of God. God's kingdom, that's the singular focus for your life and for my life. Jesus goes on to say, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. Jesus knows the devastation that results from a divided heart. And he wants better for us than that. And so he uses an illustration from life that everyone can understand. He says, if a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. We cannot live with a divided heart. And so we have choices to make. And in this respect, purity of heart, you and I are very active. We must actively choose. we got to choose to make Christ preeminent in all things. Instead of the attitudes and opinions and values and actions of the world. Let me give you an example from Scripture. And Scripture examples are always good for us, provided we don't distance ourselves from the the people that we read about. Oh, I'm so much better than those people are. No, you're not. (laughs) Neither am I. We're human, just like they are. This is from Isaiah. Chapter 1, God's talking about His people, covenant people. How the faithful city, Jerusalem, has become a whore. She who was full of justice. Righteousness lodged in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross. Your best wine mixed with water. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless and the widows. Cause does not come to them. So in this passage, the Lord compares what was to what is. There was faithfulness among his people. Now there is unfaithfulness, whoredom, as God so vividly describes it. And it happened by choice. God's people decided to be unfaithful. God's people decided to pursue other loves. Once there was righteousness... It lived, it lodged, it dwelled among God's people. Now there is unrighteousness, murder, by the choice of the people, by having a divided heart. God calls it mixing dross, impurities, 
minerals of lesser value in the silver that was pure. God calls it adding water to the wine that was the very best. And it doesn't work. Once there was devotion to God, now bribes and gifts are more appealing and alluring and therefore more sought after by God's people by their own choice because their hearts are divided. Once there was justice, now there is not. Caring for the needy, the marginalized among them, like the widow and the orphan, that came at too great a cost to the bottom line. Too great a cost, commitment of time, because their hearts were divided. God's people chose to neglect these needy ones. And here's the thing, in the midst of all these choices, they still claim to love God. God's people still go to the temple for worship. God's people still brought their sacrifices here, Lord. God's people still spread out their hands in prayer before the Lord. They found, doing, they found value in doing what they saw other cultures doing in the world around them. And so their hearts were divided by their own choice. They saw opportunities to enrich themselves in their own lives, and so they took bribes and went after gifts. They saw opportunity to have more for themselves, both in time and money, and so they neglected those who had nothing by their own choice. They could have trusted their Lord, the Lord, but by their own choice. Because of what they saw others doing, they chose not to. They opted for a divided heart. It won't work. Second example, Ezekiel. Chapter 14, Ezekiel says, Then some elders of Israel visited me, and while they were sitting with me, this message came to me from the Lord. Son of man, these leaders have set up idols in their hearts. They have embraced things that will make them fall into sin. Why should I listen to their requests? Once again, people made a choice. They saw the things of the world, things that would lead them into sin, and yet they wrapped their arms around those things. They embraced them. Scripture says they brought them before their face. That close did they bring these things. But they also wanted the Lord at the same time, and so they came to the prophet of the Lord to get advice from the Lord. But the Lord will not have any of it this divided heart. And so he says, why should I listen to their requests? He won't. In fact, he says, I will turn against such people. So the question for us is why? Why would reasonable people make such choices? Why would people who have experienced the grace of the Lord make these choices? Why would we Divide our hearts. Why would we be part the Lord's and part the world's? Why would we suffer through the turmoil that that kind of division brings to us? Here's what I think the answer is to that why question. I think it's fear. We're afraid of, of letting go of the one to embrace the other. That's what motivates the political divide in our country. I'm afraid. I'm afraid what will happen. I'm afraid of what will happen if Democrats get control. I'm afraid of what will happen if Republicans keep control. I'm afraid of what will happen if Republicans dominate the Supreme Court. 
I'm afraid of what will happen if Democrats dominate the Supreme Court. And so we act out of fear, and it's some crazy stuff. Amen to that? Is it craziness going on? It's crazy. What will happen if? What do you fear might happen? What do you fear might happen? If you let go of what the world values. What do you fear might happen if you make Christ preeminent in your life? If you are totally devoted to Him. Turn with me to Psalm 73. Grab a pew Bible if you want. And it's on page 485. Psalm 73. It's page 485 in the Pew Bible. This is a a song that was written by a man who had a lot of inner turmoil. His name was Asaph. And Asaph was afraid that he had made the wrong decision in letting go of the things of the world. He, He thought he had made a mistake. Now I like this song because it begins with the conclusion. And it fills in the details later, and you can ask my wife, Kathy. I can listen to her tell a story that's an hour along, and I can listen to every detail if I know how it ends up. Anybody like that? Honey, are they mad at me or not? Okay, they're not mad at me now. Tell me the story, right? So this psalm is my kind of psalm because it, it, it begins with the end. The conclusion. Look in verse 1. Asaph writes, Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Now, that's the conclusion. But it took him a while to get there. Asaph didn't always believe that. Not when he considered all that he had let go. So let's begin in verse 2. And just so you know, I'm reading this whole thing, okay? So relax. It's not much after this. Too much. Okay, a little bit. Verse 2. Asaph says, But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. So you see, Asaph perceives these people who have embraced the things of the world have a life of ease and abundance, and they're never molested by anything, even though they mock God. And then he looks at the choice that he has made to be wholeheartedly devoted to God. And he continues in verse 13. And in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. 
If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Can't figure it out, Lord. Until, until I went into the sanctuary of God, and then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you'll receive me to glory. Is that good news? Whom have I in heaven but you? There's nothing on earth I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you, but for me, it's good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. Isn't that a beautiful, honest song? I think you could say that Asaph was a tormented soul. He thought having an undivided heart, he thought having a pure heart before the Lord had cost him too much. He feared he had made the wrong choice, that he had let go of the wrong thing. The things of the world. He thought he had embraced the wrong thing and he admitted it. He said, Lord, I was bitter before you. Lord, I acted like a brute before you. I acted like a beast before you. I don't know what that looked like for Asaph. He doesn't give us the details, but we can fill in the blanks from our own lives, from the lives of other people who are frustrated with the Lord, of those who think following the Lord wholeheartedly has been to their detriment, while those who don't even acknowledge the Lord seem to prosper. But please note that God does not reject Asaph for his honesty about these very real feelings as he worked through them. But here's the good part. All of that changed for Asaph when he went into the temple, when he went into the sanctuary of God, the place where God dwelled on earth. When he went there, when he saw the Lord, everything changed for him. When he saw God... In the sanctuary, he knew that God was all he really wanted. Whom have I in heaven but you? There is nothing I desire on earth besides you. And so now we've come full circle with this beatitude. Back where we began weeks ago, the power of seeing God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And seeing God changes everything. It changed everything for Asaph. The wicked continued to prosper. He perhaps did not. But that was okay with Asaph because he saw the Lord. And he realized that nothing the earth has to offer can compare to the Lord. The Lord was his portion. The Lord was enough for him. And so the soul of Asaph found peace. An end to the strife 
brought about by division, by warring factions. His heart was undivided before the Lord. Don't let fear divide your heart. Fear of what you might have to let go of in order to follow the Lord. Whatever you have to let go of, it's not worth it. Of course, that doesn't mean that there's nothing else in our heart. Of course, there are the things in our heart. There's other relationships in your heart that, that God has created and through whom God will work. God has gifted you. He's given you a lot of things. It's in your heart. You're supposed to use those things. But the difference is that those relationships are now for the Lord's glory. Those gifts are now used for the Lord's glory and not for your own. Those other relationships, those other gifts cannot take priority. They're to be used for the glory of the Lord. You have to always ask yourself, Lord, how can I use these gifts? How can I use these relationships for your glory and to advance your kingdom on earth? That's what it means to have an undivided heart. The warring has ceased because you are making the right choices. With you, if your heart is pure, it's Christ first, Christ preeminent, Christ first in my vision, Christ first in my heart. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you again for your word, for the blessing of it. Father, we thank you that you put before us what a pure heart is. We thank you that you put before us the blessing of having a pure heart, which is seeing you. We thank you, Lord, that when we see you, we are changed. Lord, we need your help. We live in a place of affluence. We live lives of affluence, even the poorest among us in comparison to the rest of the world. So many things of the world allure us and call to us, Lord. We have so much, we often find ourselves not needing you, so we think. Not needing to depend on you, so we think. Providing for ourselves, so we think. Lord, our hearts are divided. We live for those things and we try to tack you on along with it. Father, show us the folly of that. And I pray that you would make us a congregation of people whose hearts are united, whose hearts are undivided in our love and devotion to you and to your kingdom and to the growth and the spread of it in our homes and our neighborhoods in Charleston and around the world. Help us seek first your kingdom. Lord, make us singular people. We need your spirit to accomplish this in us and through us. We need your spirit to give us the courage to make right decisions. We need your spirit to give us the ability to say no to the things of the world so that we can embrace you and what you have for us. We pray that you will enable us to do that, for it's in Jesus' name we ask. Amen.